Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. Two Catholics with a PhD in common sense. Uh, and I'm going to be joined very shortly by Paul Clay, my uh, Tuesday and Thursday partner. My partner, Terry Barber, is out doing apostolic work. Terry does the work of a Catholic priest, let me tell you, of a Catholic pastor. Uh, he's always uh, helping people with their sacraments, uh, getting people, burying people, having people baptized, uh, evangelizing people. Uh, Terry doesn't stop working for the mystical body of Christ. So my partner, Paul Clay, is on with me today. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show, my friend. Yeah, I see Paul. Thank you, Jess. Good to be here. Yeah. yeah. Just want to mention today's the feast day of St. Clair. Uh, St. Clair, uh, pray for us. What do we know about this, uh, this pious, holy woman? Well, St. Clair, we know that she embraced wholeheartedly St. Francis's joyful love for poverty as a means of entering into profound communion with our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. And the St. Clair, the, the nuns, and by the way, Mother Angelica, rest in peace, she's a poor Clare nun, so she comes from this family tree. The poor Clare nuns started by St. Clair, they're renowned for their, for their penitential austerity of their lives and the, and the joy that they exude whenever you talk to a, a, a poor Clare. Uh, Clare was actually very, a very beautiful young lady, very wealthy, and at the age of 18, she renounced everything to follow Christ in the manner of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Paul the Apostle. And so she co-founded the Poor Clare Nuns, establishing their first house at San Damiano, Italy. And the, the, four, the first Poor Clare Nuns established by St. Clare, they went barefoot. They, wear, they wore rough tunics, like, like uh, uh, hair shirts, and they begged for food. And it was in 1234 that, uh, that St. Clare famously displayed the Blessed Sacrament on the convent, convent wall uh, as Frederick II's army attacked. She prostrated herself and she prayed, holding the Blessed Sacrament, Good Lord, I beg you, defend those I cannot protect. And uh, what happened? When St. Clair raised the Ciborium, the soldiers scattered and, uh, and, and the convent was spared from being pillaged by these, by these wicked, evil men. St. Clair died in 1253 AD and was canonized only two years later. St. Clair, pray for us. St. Francis of Assisi, pray for us. for us. Want to talk about some good news items, but before we do, I just want to jump into today's Holy Gospel, and I want to get Paul's take on it uh, as well. It's in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. This is the Gospel in, in the Novus Ordo Mass, the, the Latin Mass. They have a different calendar of readings. Uh, the Novus Ordo Mass has a little... Uh, they have a little more readings on, uh, on the daily Mass. And so today's Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. It actually says in the Greek, and lose his soul. Yeah, suke. Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay each according to his conduct. So notice your behavior, your good works, it actually has something to do at the very end in terms of your rewards. It says, Amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you one thing. 
the, today's gospel completely flies against the face of what we call the Protestant prosperity gospel, which is the gospel that's come about within the last, probably, probably the last, I don't know, since the TBN channel, they became very popular and virtually to be, to become part of the lineup in the TBN channel, you have to buy into the, what's called the prosperity Protestant gospel. In other words, God wants us all to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I don't find that in the New Testament. As I read the New Testament, I find quite the opposite. I find that salvation and sanctification are usually achieved, yes, by the grace of God, but through a life of suffering. And so uh, here's a little uh, something I've never revealed to the audience before. Paul doesn't even know this. Uh, It was about 15 years ago, the TBN channel called me up, Paul and Jan Crouch. Had a meeting with them. They called me up. Apparently, they had heard some of my cassette tapes back then. Cassette tapes, remember, from St. Joseph's Communications. And Paul Crouch told me, he said, uh, 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 Mr. Romero, I've heard a lot of your cassette tapes. People have been giving them to me. He says, um, I'd like you to consider working for the TBN channel, but we, we would have to kind of update your theology because it's, it's too Catholic, but your style, your Hispanic, your passion... He says, I'll make you the next Benny Hinn. I'll make you the next Benny. And uh, I'm on the phone. My wife is listening to this conversation. He said, I've got a contract right here. I've got six zeros on a check. He goes, name your price. This was 15 years ago when I was a lot younger. Okay, uh, And I was in my charismatic heydays. Um, he said, uh, I, I told him, I told him, uh, Mr. Crouch, I said, with all due respect, I said, you probably don't know me very well, but uh, not only am I a Catholic evangelist, I said, every single bone in my body is Catholic. I said, uh, I'm part of the one true church. I said, I, uh, I, I, you know, I thank you that you actually find that there's something worthy in me that you would give me a phone call and offer me uh, a job on the TBN channel to be a preacher. But uh, I'm a Catholic Christian. I was born a Catholic Christian. I will die a Catholic Christian. It is the one true church. And uh, thank you very much for your offer. But uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, 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 you know, rescinding your offer because uh, once again, there's just no way I could leave the Catholic church knowing what I know. So that's something that <laughs> Paul probably heard that for the first time. But again, Paul, you have any comments about what Christ says about the life of suffering today? Yeah, sure do, Jess. Um well, you know, just in, in a quick comment, you know, modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, right? And so you talked about that Protestant gospel and how it, I mean, the Protestant gospel essentially is boiled down to modernism, right? It is basically um, taking an ancient religion, the Christian faith, and modernizing it. Yeah. And uh, so, so we know, according to Pius X, that that's the synthesis synthesis of all heresies. And uh, um, speaking of today's gospel, uh, like you said, that gospel is not an easy gospel. It's a gospel that 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 basically Christ says, make a choice. He's yeah. going to be Lord of all or not Lord at all. You know, and so uh, his disciples are willing to lay it out on the line. Uh, his disciples understand that this earthly life is very temporal why is it temporal well because of sin and god in his grace doesn't want to leave us in that in that sinful state so um 
to understand that our end is God, that uh, that is the end of man, uh, the, the body-soul composite you know, God is going to have to destroy this body and raise it up to a new body in order to uh, uh, totally free us from th this bondage that we're in. Uh, praise God, uh, we have Amen. that foresight and we have the gospel that, that tells us exactly what is needed and what's required. That's right. By the way, anybody out there that wants to do a deeper dive into this, there's a book that just came out. It's called The Prosperity Gospel. It's put out by 10 books. It's written by a, a former Protestant convert to the Catholic faith. And he mm. goes through the whole history of the prosperity gospel and all the errors. It doesn't, it, it doesn't even comport to Reformation theology. It's, no. even a depart, it's even a departure from Reformation theology. So yeah. the prosperity gospel is something that it's a, it's a complete novelty, even yes. within Protestantism. So there's a book out there if any of you guys want to do a deep, a, a deep reading on the topic. A couple yeah. of things, Paul, well, just a couple, a couple of good news items. Um, Coach, Coach Joe Kennedy will return to the sidelines for his team's opening game next month, marking his comeback after a seven-year hiatus and a Supreme Court victory. Coach Joe Kennedy was a Catholic coach at Bremerton High School who, uh, you know, he got basically fired because he would get him down on his knees before the football game and he would pray <laughs> on his knees. So uh, he said the following. He said, I am praying, for, uh, because he's coming back, uh, you know, after a seven-year hiatus. He says, I am praying for a fantastic fall for our Knights. Uh, he says, and I'm inviting all Americans to take a knee in prayer with me uh, on September 1st, the night of the team's first game. <laughs> good for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, good job. Yep. Also, here's something else that's uh, just on the culture on the culture watch. Uh, the Democrats are starting to recruit uh, criminals and inmates for the next elections. So be on the lookout for that. The left wants to normalize voter classes that nobody took seriously a generation ago. They're going after criminals, foreigners, and inmates to help them win elections. So that's also something that we have to watch out for, something that's very dangerous. You uh, know, Justice, yeah. this stuff defies common sense. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you think about it, if we have what they call, what they're saying we have, which is a democratic form of, of government, then that means the will of the people can vote certain realities into existence, right? And so, yes. so you got a guy who is, you know, being punished and being and society is being protected from because society has deemed them to be, um, you know, uh, a danger to society. We're going to allow them to vote to change our laws. <laughs> that I don't, makes I, a lot. I, that it, makes it, a lot yeah, of sense, right? It's it's just a head scratcher. You know, look, there's certain things that you give up uh, uh, when you violate laws and so forth, and one of them is your right to vote. Uh, that's right. That's, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Terry and Jesse show. We're going to be talking about the seamless garment next. What is the seamless garment? Uh, well, this is what the left has been using since the 60s to, to try to confuse Catholics when it comes to, to voting. And we're also going to talk about kneeling, how you should kneel when you enter a Catholic church. Stick around. We'll be right back. Let's get into a little bit of theology here. The seamless garment heresy has been, um, it's been making Catholics 
liberals since the 60s. The seamless garment heresy was, uh, was put together, was uh, orchestrated by a modernist prelate back in the 60s named Cardinal Bernardine, who, by the way, when he died, he had, he had uh, written in his will that he wanted a homosexual choir to sing for his funeral. So the Methodist uh, all-men homosexual choir, they sung for his funeral. There was also a lot of uh, well-documented allegations by a church militant and other organizations about a sexual predatory nature as well. He was a bad man. Theologically, he was also very confused. He came up with the seamless garment. And, and uh, the seamless garment, I can tell you, it's, it's worked for the left. It's been death for the pro-life movement in many instances. Uh, a, a liberal Catholic priest, very famous as well on the left, he, uh, uh, Father Daniel McGuire, a pro-abortion Catholic priest, uh, which is, should be an oxymoron, he said this, quote, Honest debate is the only way to get, to get this abortion bone out of the Catholic throat so that we can get on to more important life, pro-life issues like hunger, health care, Overpopulation and militarism. <laughs> um, mm, more important talk, issues. Yeah, those are those are the real important issues. Yeah. So the, uh, the the left they would call people the ones that use the seamless garment garment argument. They would say, Jesse, Paul, you guys have an anti-life philosophy. Here's how they'll argue. They'll say, Oh, people who call themselves pro-life, like Jess Romero and Paul Clay, they're phonies. Because they don't care about the rights of gays and minorities. They're for the death penalty. They couldn't, They could care less about nuclear weapons, war, the environment, and animal rights. So that's how they try to broad brush people that are, that are Orthodox, Orthodox Catholics. The seamless garment, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a poet, he said this about the seamless garment. Uh, it's, it's an effective weapon for the, for the confusion on the left. He said this, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. In other words, the <laughs> left has been pushing this uh, this uh, uh, seamless garment since the 60s, and every time right around election time, the Catholic left and the political left, they come together and use this argument. Paul, you want to pick it up where it talks about weaver of the cloth, and it goes right to the origins of where this started. Yeah, it looks like Ralph Waldo Emerson was a very smart man. <laughs> you know? A foolish consistency is what was what that is. What you described, this seamless garment, is the hobgoblin of little minds. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yep. Any anyway, um, so weaver and the cloth. Although the seamless garment theory has been in existence since social activism began, it was first applied to pro-lifers in 1976 by Joseph Cardinal. Bernardin in Dallas. The Man Cardinal left. did not, yeah, the Cardinal did not provide useful details on his permutation of the theory until 1984, until a 1984 St. Louis uh, talk entitled A Consistent Ethic of Life, Continuing the Dialogue, where he stated that although abortion and nuclear war cannot be collapsed into one problem, they must nevertheless be confronted as pieces of a larger problem. Hmm. See, that, that's where he comes up with this seamless garment that they're all connected. Uh, nuclear war, abortion, they're all connected. No, they're not connected. That's where he's wrong. Yeah. yeah. And since the threat of nuclear war, war is something that 
will never, uh, you know, will plague us forever. I guess they want us to just, uh, you know, develop the idea that abortion is just something we're going to have to live with forever. You know? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, you yeah. know, this this is a perfect fit for the left. Pro-abortion and other neoliberal groups, of course, couldn't be happier with Cardinal Bernardine's seamless garment because with it, they could cloak themselves with a shroud of legitimacy and righteousness. Anti-life groups like Catholics for a Free Choice, funded by George Soros, see the seamless garment as a hell-sent, handy way of putting abortion at the bottom of everyone's priority list and even hopefully of burying the thorny and messy issue altogether. After all... If we relegate abortion to the back burner, nobody will attempt to violate the privacy of the baby killers. This is not the original intent of, of, cardinals, of the Cardinal's concept, of course. But how many times have veteran pro-life activists heard the following? And I've heard this. Uh, Jess, you're not really pro-life unless you oppose capital punishment. You're not really pro-life unless you work to stop nuclear war. You're not really pro-life unless you work to stop hunger. You're not really pro-life unless you work to increase human dignity. You're not really pro-life unless you you work to increase access to contraception. You're not really pro-life unless you work to safeguard gay, perverted rights. You're not really pro-life unless you save the whales. You're not really pro-life unless you adopt several Ethiopian children. You're not really pro-life unless you're a strict vegetarian and wear no leather. You're not really pro-life unless you do a thousand other things. They'll say everything to you, anything besides opposing abortion. So... So now imagine now, now imagine this, Jess. If 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 you had to divide your time behind behind all of those issues, yeah, then you would only give a percentage, a fraction of your time toward any one of them, right? Correct. Yeah. And nothing yeah. and nothing would be solved. That's right. Yes. Uh so the examples of the seamless garment in action, the seamless garment apologists, and they're on the offensive, especially right around election times, inevitably. Neoliberal clergy wove a seamless web from the consistent ethic of life, leading to numerous flagrant abuses. For example, Cardinal Bernardine, a bad dude, a bad guy, himself attended several banquets to benefit Planned Parenthood's contributors and then criticized a good cardinal, a holy cardinal, John O'Connor's pro-life efforts as being inconsistent. Those charges were naturally leveled while Cardinal O'Connor, the great cardinal from New York, was out of the country and was therefore unable to reply. Cardinal Bernardine also fired a good priest from the Chicago Diocesan Pro-Life Office for offering mass in reparation for the widespread use of artificial contraception by American Catholics, saying that this mass was too narrow and negatively focused, so he was canceled and or fired. Of course, masses said for the intention of getting relief from the oppression of the Contras, or for homosexuals, oh yeah, these masses are perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. Paul, you want to mm-hmm. pick it up? I want go down to where it starts, where it says, uh, yeah, yeah, no, pick it up right there. Pick it up next. Yeah, where's the okay. bushwhack? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another outstanding example of how the seamless garment theory can be twisted to favor anti-life forces is a full-page advertisement that appeared in November third, nineteen eighty-eight edition of a left-wing Catholic newspaper called The Progress. The purpose of this ad was to drum up support for the second most anti-life presidential candidate this country has ever seen, Michael Dukakis. A Democrat. Yeah, he, he must have been second behind uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, that's what he means. Yeah, Joe Biden's <laughs> yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, the headline is uh, in in one inch high letters shouted, George Bush is pro-life with a question mark. Uh, actions speak louder than rhetoric. The ad proceeded to describe all of the perceived economic woes of the country and placed all of them along with the Iran-Contra affair at Bush's feet. The complaints included the plight of farm families, bank failures, infant mortality, wealth concentration, the minimum wage, and all the issues near and dear to the neoliberals' cold Heart. I like that. Cold heart. <laughs> Abortion was not mentioned until the concluding pitch and only then in a condescending manner. Notice how the pro-aborts once again used the tools of confusion and deception as they tried to lay claim to the pro-life title. George Bush wants you to believe he is pro-life. He may be anti-abortion, but his policies are far from pro-life. Vote for Dukakis and ben and Benston, Benson, paid for by Catholics committed to responsible pro-life leadership. You know, shame, yeah, shame on them for even using the name Catholic. And this is again, this is why it's important, Jess, and we talk about it. Why poorly for poor formation, it, you know, um, it, you know, makes you inept. It, you are you're not able to. To even reason. That's the one thing about the true Catholic faith. <laughs> faith and reason go together. And to be able to articulate and reason and reasonably argue a point is something that is a lost art today, uh, particularly among liberals. That's right. So the Vatican reply, as usual, Pope John Paul II got to the heart of the matter when he said on February 12, 1986, the following quote, an extreme sensitivity to a holy, akin to a holy reaction is felt when attempts on life are made in the form of famine, war, and terrorism. Yet one cannot find this feeling of sensitivity when faced with abortion, which takes the lives of innumerable innocent beings, close quote. So he responded to Bernardine. What about nuclear war? The most popular connection made by the seamless gar garment supporters is the abortion nuclear war link. They allege that a person simply cannot be truly pro-life if he or she in any way, shape, or form supports a strong national defense. However, and what's funny is every time Democrats are in office, we're in war. That's what's funny about uh, you know this topic. However, yeah. supporters of the seamless shroud deliberately obscure the central points of the comparison. First point, more importantly, most importantly, the intentions behind abortion and national warfare are fundamentally different. Abortion is a pure act of aggression that seeks to kill innocent and helpless human beings, primarily for comfort and convenience. A just war seeks to destroy purely military targets and is carried out against well-armed troops that can defend themselves quite adequately. Second bullet, the intention of a reactive war is to defend one's country in a way of life. The purpose of abortion is also to preserve one's lifestyle, but abortion is an offensive, not a defensive act. Unfortunately, all of this is irrelevant in the seamless garment debate, which is always carried out at the crudest and most appealing levels. Let's talk about the death penalty, Paul. Yeah, seamless garment enthusiasts also state flatly that one cannot be truly pro-life if he is not both anti-abortion and anti-death penalty. This is worse than a comparison of apples and oranges. It is literally a comparison of grapes and watermelons. <laughs> Once again, seamless shroud supporters ignore the central points of the comparison. 
uh, point number one, the preborn baby is committed, has committed no harm against anyone, while those who receive the death penalty have been found guilty of the most heinous of crimes in most cases, many heinous crimes. Yeah, in most cases, many, more than one heinous crime. Pro-aborts may argue that the preborn baby commits harm against the mother just by existing. But this heartless argument totally neglects the fact that intent is missing. Nobody who kills another person unintentionally will be sentenced to death. The crime may instead be manslaughter. You know, just we'll pick it up. Talking. Good argument. Yeah. Good argument. I want you to. I want you to uh, comment on that next, Paul. Yeah. Terry and Jesse show. We're talking about the seamless garment theory. No, the seamless garment heresy. And the way it's been confusing Catholics since the 60s. We'll be right back. Two-man car, the Terry and Jesse show. Jess Romero, Paul Clay, my Tuesday, Thursday partner here on VMPR.org. Uh, Paul, we're talking about the seamless garment theory, which is this theory, which is pure uh, modernism, has caused a lot of damage into the Catholic Church. You were talking about the way the seamless garment apologists, uh, the way they try to uh, say that, well, if you hold to the death penalty, you're not really pro-life. So uh, you're going point by point on showing yeah. the fact that the death penalty and the pro-life the, the killing a baby, uh, they're apples and oranges. We're not talking about the same thing. Yeah, as the author says, they're, they're more like uh, uh, apples and or grapes and watermelons. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why? Because I, I, think about it. Even the law just recognizes that, you know, okay, homicide is when a person kills another person, right? That's what a homicide is. Uh, but the law recognizes something called justifiable homicide. So that the so that in the taking of another life in and of itself is not a crime. It only becomes a crime when the taking of that life has been deemed unjust or, or has been deemed. Uh, so, so example, if a police officer has to take a life to defend his life or someone else's life, he is not guilty of a crime. OK, and that uh, so that distinction, they fail to make that distinction that that when we're talking about comparing uh, uh, guys who have been found guilty in a court of law when society is doing exactly what God had designed uh, governments to do, uh, uh, and, and they pronounce judgment on this person, to sit there and try to claim that, oh, this is somehow a, a egregious offense compared to taking an innocent child who has done nothing wrong, uh, not to mention, uh, uh, you know, you can only imagine how God feels about mm. this, uh, the author of life, Jess. I, it, it just baffles me, uh, the confusion that's out there and that people can't see through these ridiculous arguments. But we know why they can't, because they have rejected God. They have rejected his grace. And and if they're in a state of mortal sin, yeah, they, they're devoid of, of God's grace you know, uh, and the life of God, the mind of Christ to be able to see through these things. And for a long time, society has been assaulted, Jess. We've been under attack 
And uh, so this isn't something that's happened overnight. This is that's a right. long process that they've been uh, uh, trying to build back better. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, they've been cooking this up for decades. Yeah, Paul, what's yeah. the second bullet, the second bullet the author makes? Yeah. The criminal has been tried by a jury in front of a judge, and both sides have presented evidence. The preborn has no jury, no judge, not even a charge other than existing. That's his charge. He exists. <laughs> That's his crime. Uh, and he is simply sentenced to death. He does not have the slightest chance of defending himself. And think about this, Jess. The criminal gets automatic appeal. Somebody gets the death sentence, it automatically gets appealed. And we know uh, there's been people, especially in California, that have been on death row for 25, 30 years. So, uh, so you know, we're not even barely executing, you know, uh, criminals. And, and at the same time, you know, the liberal wants to use the argument that, oh, um, you know, are you trying to tell me that if a woman is raped, Look at most, uh, you know, if a woman is raped, she, she has to carry that baby and they'll use this extreme example. But here's right. the reality of the situation. Most abortions, the large majority of yes. them are, Correct. you know, are done because it is inconvenient yes. for the mother. And yes. that's it. But but yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, Paul, what's the third bullet? What's the third bullet that, he, that third, the author makes? Yeah. Third bullet. Execution of a killer is a matter of the utmost of utmost seriousness. It is true that some innocent people may have been executed, but it is also true that the system has expended great efforts in discerning his guilt. On the other hand, almost all abortions are committed for the most trivial reasons, as I just stated. As described in uh, chapter 87, statistics on abortion in the same philosophy, if the same philosophy was applied towards a crime, all of our jails would be empty because the death penalty would be automatic for such petty crimes as larceny and DUI. <laughs> as evidence of this last point, every day in this country, more innocent unborn babies die than all the criminals executed in this country's history. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. You see that one day of abortion, you know, is more than every criminal that has ever been uh, uh, executed, executed in history. This is George Washington. Yeah. 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 That's 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 just crazy. Abortion and the death penalty cannot logically be compared. Seamless garment hacks are trying to tell us this absurd, uh, trying to trying to sell us this absurd equation. The problem of the deaths of 20 guilty murderers per year is far more important than the problem of the deaths of 1,550,000 innocent babies per year. For the left, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for the left. Yeah, 20 guilty murderers, and that's on average what we who die a year for their heinous crimes. <laughs> but they're trying to say, well, you know, the, the 1,555,000 babies, well, that's really not that big a deal. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, because they can't, you know, the people that are pro abortion are the people that are already, that, that are already alive. It's funny. Yeah. You're already alive. Your mom already decided to, to your mom said yes to life and you're alive. So so these are the people that are now like, well, I'm pro-abortion. Yeah, because you had a chance to live. If it wasn't for your mother and, and her good virtue on her part or good judgment, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be alive. It wasn't for her. Uh, so the seamless garment 
it equals death for the pro-life activism. In this, in the pro-life move, if the pro-life movement is to survive, it must avoid the seamless garment concept like the plague that it is. It is absolutely essential to reject this philosophy totally as uh, Frankie Schaefer, a Protestant philosopher, so rightly predicted. He said this, quote, if you put on the clothes of the seamless garment, the pro-life movement is finished. Why? There are several compelling reasons for this rejection. To begin with, the pro-life movement is inevitably a broad spectrum in its membership. It includes liberals and conservatives, Catholics, Protestants, atheists and Jews, independents, Democrats and Republicans. The people in this movement agree on one thing, that human life must be protected from conception. If other admittedly important issues such as the nuclear threat, animal rights, and capital punishment become part of the debate, it will be very hard to find any two people in the, in, in the new, expanded, seamless pro-life movement who will agree on everything. Thus, the movement would inevitably fracture into a thousand f- factions and die. Besides, what is wrong with being single issue in the first place? Martin Luther King was single issue. Even Margaret Sanger was single issue. Many revered movements have been entirely single issue. Civil rights, abolitionists, and the unionizing movement are just three examples. After the Supreme Court's July 1989 Webster decision, the National Organization for Women and other pro-abortion groups demanded that their members sign pledges that they would never vote for an anti-choice politician. This is yet another case of pervasive neoliberal double standard pro-lifers must be multiple issue, but neoliberals may be anything they like. Finally, broadening our scope will be the death knell of the pro-life movement because so many committed activists will be spending so much time in soup kitchens and picketing nuclear power plants that they won't have any time, energy, or money left to stop abortion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Abortion is a single issue. As the, as the bishops have actually voted, and Pope John Paul II is clearly taught, it is the preeminent issue of the third century, period. And, yeah, and we know how precious, uh, how precious the little ones are in the sight of God. You know, um, this is not, listen, just sacred scripture tells us the, our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And let me tell you something, the devil, the God, little g of this world, is a liar, and he has he has basically beguiled all of these modernist people. And, 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 and why? Because, listen, Jess, we talked about it with uh, with Josh um, Charles, uh, Josh Charles. Yeah, yeah. With Josh Charles, the two swords. Listen, God has deemed society, the civil government and the church and both of those swords work together and cooperatively to bring us to our end which is christ so the minute that you know we're being attacked on so many levels darwin he comes in with this idea of a you know spontaneous generation and there is no god we basically just came cloth out of nothing and so 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 there's no god and therefore the church now I mean, the state wants to be indifferent. Imagine that. They want, you know, that religious relativism. Every religion is just the same. That, you know, we're all on the same par. No, God is God. He's the God of the government. He's the God of the church, the church, not the churches, but the church, the holy Catholic church, the one that Jesus Christ founded. And this is what people don't get. And a lot of people say, well, that's, you know, we, we're used to words like liberty and, and uh, you know, um, uh, uh, brotherhood, 
and you know they they, they sound like you know you know so good but the they're all they're also is, Masonic, they're also Masonic words yes and those and and what the, and and people need to realize that what they're referring to is the brotherhood of fallen mankind without so the fatherhood we, of God without the fatherhood of God that's exactly right and the life that they want is not life eternal but life here on earth that's yep. why they're so focused on earthly endeavors that's why like, they're they're actually like like, like trans like transhumanism yes like yes, ai they, they want to extend their life here and now. They don't want the life of Christ. They don't want, you know, sacred scripture is clear when it says that that in Christ, we both move and breathe and have our being. Uh, this is nothing more than, uh, you know, they're picking. You know, this is, like I said, Darwinism and atheism and, and society is attacked. Say, I'm just, please, people, if, you know, just think about how logical what we're talking about is. And, and if you can't see these facts, pray and ask God to show you Amen. things. Because, yeah. You got it. Hey, on the next segment, we're going to talk on liturgy, why and how Catholics should kneel when entering a church. There's a reason and a way for Catholics to kneel when in the presence of the Holy Eucharist. We'll Amen. be right back. Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. So, historically and currently, there are two basic forms of Eucharistic adoration in the Catholic Church. First, there's what's, what might be called simple adoration, which is when the faithful adore the Lord, really truly substantially present in the most holy sacrament, in the ciborium reserved in the tabernacle, if the presence of the faithful can be assured, the doors of the tabernacle may be left open, or the ciborium removed and placed on a corporal on the altar. In this scenario, the ciborium itself should be covered with a veil. Sometimes people refer to this as simple exposition. Second, there is solemn adoration or solemn exposition of the blessed sacrament. When a large host is placed within a glass called a lunet, and this in turn is fitted into a monstrance, usually made of gold or silver, at least six candles are placed around the monstrance and kept burning for the duration of the exposition. Such exposition can be done at any time when the faithful will be guaranteed to be present. The monstrance may never be left unattended, but it is especially fitting to do so on the Feast of Corpus Christi, during the octave of Corpus Christi, and on other great feasts of the church's liturgical calendar. What, whenever we enter into the nave of a Catholic church, we should immediately genuflect towards the Blessed Sacrament. Happily, the tabernacle is often, often on or behind the main altar, so that our genuflection becomes a simultaneous reverencing of the Lord's real presence and an acknowledgement of the altar the greatest uh, mere symbol of Christ in the church. If the tabernacle happens to be located somewhere else than the main altar, however, we should not genuflect towards the altar, but rather towards the tabernacle. He's, Dr. Kwasniewski says, in the parish where I went to Mass growing up, a renovation in the 1970s had destroyed the integrity of the building 
by tearing out the high altar, rebuilding the nave in the round, and putting the tabernacle off to the side. In the midst of a bunch of padded chairs for overflow seating, I never got to experience the original form of the church. Although I saw it once in a heartbreaking black and white photograph, and I remember my, I remember my parents saying that they couldn't understand why it had been done. Thinking back on my childhood, I cringe to think of how many irreverences were committed for the simple reason that the tabernacle was absolutely in the wrong place and was yes. basically ignored by all. Yes. In, in, in a sign of the times, this church has, has recently been renovated yet again and restored to a more Catholic layout. A history like this inevitably prompts the question, why did so much money have to be wasted to wreck a lovely Gothic church and then more money spent to restore it to something that didn't even equal its former glory? Traditionally, the genuflection towards the tabernacle should be on the right knee for simple exposition too. It is sufficient to genuflect on one knee like this. During liturgies, ministers also go down on the right knee whenever they genuflect even towards a presiding prelate. Some people follow the custom of using the left knee when kneeling before a bishop or a cardinal to kiss his ring or before a priest to receive a blessing. This is neither to be enjoined, which means prescribed, nor scorned. What is important is to understand the difference in symbolism. We kneel before the blessed sacrament in adoration or latria directed to God, whereas we kneel before a successor of the apostles to give honor, but not adoration, to one who represents Christ to us. At solemn exposition, however, a special custom of veneration has, has obtained for a long time. The believer is to fall upon both of his knees and make a profound bow towards the floor, even to the point of touching the floor with his head. In, desacralizing, in the desacralizing tendencies of the 1970s, an attempt was made to do away with the special form of genuflection. It seems that people were strangely embarrassed about humbling themselves before God. The words of the Lord must have vanished from their minds. Quote, For he that shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man shall be ashamed when he shall come in his majesty and that of his Father and of the holy angels. Luke 9.26 In the 1973 document, Holy Communion and the Worship of the Eucharist, outside Mass, we read the following, quote, A single genuflection is made in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, whether reserved in the tabernacle or exposed for public adoration. Father Edward McNamara, McNamara a conservative leading liturgist at Regina Apostolorum uh, and a longtime correspondent, attempts to defend this modern reductionism. Here's what he says. Since the genuflection is per, is per se an act of adoration, the general liturgical norms no longer make any distinction between the mode of adoring Christ reserved in the tabernacle or exposed upon the altar. The simple single genuflection on one knee may be used in all cases. However, some bishops' conferences have voted to retain the use of the double genuflection for the Blessed Sacrament exposed, and it would be required in these countries. In this case, those who make the double genuflection kneel briefly on both knees and reverently incline the head with hands joined, Needless to say, the simple genuflection should never be reduced to a sudden spasm in the right knee. The right knee should touch the place where the right foot stood while the head and back remain straight. The gesture of adoration should be performed with due pause. And he says, when I was a wise young, when I was a young, a wise priest taught me to recite the invocation, quote, my Jesus, I adore you in the sacraments of your love. 
so as to gauge a reasonable, a reasonable time to remain knee to floor. One can stay perhaps, longer perhaps, but it is a fairly safe rule of thumb. Let me, so let me just sum, this, sum, sum up this article. When you go into a Catholic church and our Lord is inside the tabernacle, should be in the middle, you genuflect on your right knee, that's an act of adoration, latria. If the tabernacle is off to the side, or, uh, off to the side right or left, which it shouldn't be, but I'm not the pastor or the bishop, it shouldn't be, then you turn towards where the tabernacle's at and you genuflect towards the tabernacle. That's the presence of Christ. Now, if you enter into a church, I'm just summing up the article. If you enter into a Catholic church and, and our Lord is exposed inside a monstrance in the lunate, then when you walk in, you get down on both knees and you bow down to the ground. Uh, you, you, by the way, in th- this position, you'll find, you'll find it, it's, it's very common in, in the Latin Mass. You'll find the, the, the acolytes or the altar boys in the Latin Mass while kneeling, it, they'll bow their heads down, you know this, Paul, because you're, you're an acolyte, almost mm-hmm. touching the ground in certain parts of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So this actually happens in the Latin Mass, you'll see it, they're kneeling, and then the acolytes or altar boys will bow down in certain times of the Mass. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's what's supposed to be done uh, in addition when Jesus is exposed in a monstrance in the Blessed Sacrament. You enter a church, get on both knees, bow down, uh, you know, basically your face to the ground. And that's all over the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 24, verse 5. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. 1 Chronicles 29, 20. Exodus 12, 27. 1 Kings 18, 42, and many others. Let me quote to you the Luke's account. It says this, quote, And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. Mm. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Here's another one. Lamentations 2, 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And so you mm. find this position about, uh, about bowing your head to the ground and both, with both knees in the presence of God in the Old and New Testament. Well, the same thing happens when we enter into a Catholic church and God is present on the altar in a monstrance Get down on your knees and bow down your head to the ground. Now, if our Lord is inside the tabernacle, all that's required is a genuflection with the right knee. Paul, we're almost done. Any comments? Yeah, I got a comment. So uh, you asked, you know, why why does the modernists and why do these modernist priests, uh, you know, try to explain away or try to, uh, you know, basically... Uh, uh, you know, just take away from these acts of reverence. And uh, there is no reason other than the fact that uh, there's a book, Jess, and it was written by Marcel Lefebvre, and it, it, it was entitled, They Have Uncrowned Him. And that's essentially... I've heard of that book. What, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When liberals tend to, um, you know... Take power. Uh, uh, they take power. Take, they take power. Yeah. There is an uncrowning that takes place. Yeah. And they don't want to bow their knees and pay homage to their God in the way that uh, well-formed Catholics have been taught for, for literally for centuries. Um, it's a sad state of affairs. 
But uh, sacred scripture tells us, let every man work out his salvation in fear and trembling, Jess. And you can never go wrong uh, with uh, giving God too much praise, too much glory, because to him be all glory, all praise and all honor. Now, I, I, I could be corrected on this, but I've, I've investigated this for years and I've read articles on this. I noticed something very interesting that our present Holy Father, he doesn't uh, genuflect in front of the, in the tabernacle or the Blessed Sacrament. I, 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 I'm, I could be corrected. Somebody send me an article and show me that he has because I've written, I've, I've uh, read articles that he doesn't genuflect before the Blessed Sacrament. But I'll tell you what is interesting. And, and some people say because he's got bad knees. Okay, I get it. However, there are pictures on the internet. A few times that Muslim dignitaries have come to visit him, Pope Francis gets on his both knees and he kisses their feet. <laughs> now, now, I'm not making this up. This is on the internet. There's pictures there. That's the position only for Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. You yes. don't do that especially a Pope should not get down on his knees and on his face and kiss a Muslim's feet. Yeah. There's, I'm just, I'm sorry, Paul. There's no excuse for that. Okay. Oh yeah. How lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. And that is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not an Islamic uh, uh, Imam. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So say a prayer for our Pope. Uh, he, uh, he really, no, ser seriously, pray for him every single day. Uh, his, uh, you could just see his Jesuit malformation is on display front and center. God help us and God help him. Yes. Uh, and 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 pray for the Pope. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on, brother. Great. Yeah, show thanks for always. having me. Yeah. Up next, uh, keep on listening to vmpr.org. Keep on listening to the station where. Uh, we speak the truth of power, and we do it fearlessly. And uh, we want to just thank you for those of you that listen to the show. Hey, uh, support the show by sharing the full show link at vmpr.org. You can also find us on social media at VMP Radio and our YouTube channel called Full Sheen Ahead. Share us with your family and your friends and evangelize everybody you love. Have a great weekend. God bless you. Keep the faith. Love you, family. <laughs>